I'm pleased to introduce Mr. Joe Matthews, our moderator for the evening. Joe Matthews is California editor for Sokolow Public Square, an Irvine senior fellow at the New America Foundation, and a fellow at the Center for Social Cohesion at Arizona State University. He also serves as lead blogger for NBC's California site, Prop Zero, and his work appears in the Daily Beast, the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, and Politico, among other places. Previously a reporter for the Los Angeles Times and the Wall Street Journal, he is the author of The People's Machine, a political biography of Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and co-author of California Crack Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State and How We Can Fix It. Please give a warm welcome to Joe Matthews. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Gregory. Uh, thanks to the Peterson. Thanks to this incredible panel. My greatest frustration about this night is that um, each of these people have done such interesting uh, thorough work and research that we could have a you know separate Zocalo one-on-one with each of them. So I hope you'll also enjoy us in the reception to get to, to know that they're working even more intimate detail. I come to this subject when we talk about civic engagement. I mean, I know the provocative title is Why Don't Californians Talk More About Politics? as a way of talking about civic engagement, political civic engagement. Um, and I come to it with sort of a reporter cynicism, you know, a political reporter cynicism for years, looking at that, you know, having people, experts on the phone tell me, you know, the real core problem in California is a, is a lack of engagement uh, by the public. And, and I, I think what we want to do tonight is sort of is, is get away from sort of vague slogans and words and try to sort of put uh, meat on the bones. And, and I'm going to push uh, uh, all of our panelists to be really specific um, and, and, and try to define terms. I, I want to also not just talk about what's wrong, but I want to get very quickly into the question of, you know, what specific things can we do? What, whether it's it's ourselves or or, or it's policymakers, to really um, to to improve engagement, civic engagement in the state. Um, so I want to start, um, and I'll introduce these folks as each as I as I ask them a question. But let's start immediately to my left uh, with Pete Peterson, who is. Uh, uh, no relation to the founder of this museum. No. Um, this is the first. Ex- uh, he's a, a executive director of the the Davenport Institute, which works on uh, on civic engagement and and public leadership at Pepperdine. Uh, he's executive director of the first executive director of Common Sense California, um, which promotes and supports citizen engagement um, as a way of producing uh, more creative policy decisions and uh, better citizens. Um, he's done all sorts of work uh, in participatory planning, participatory budgeting, um, and he um, co-created and, and co-facilitates a training seminar, Leadership Through Civic Engagement. Um, he's really, he's trained our leaders uh, in, in, in uh, civic engagement. Um, you also helped produce, along with the National Conference on Citizenship, a document that I think is very valuable and hasn't gotten enough attention, which is the California Civic Health Index. Um, and sort of tries to define civic engagement and tell us sort of how we rank compared to other states by various measures, both in political civic engagement, um, things like voting, registering to vote, discussing politics with your friends and neighbors, and social civic engagement, volunteering, having dinner with family, working community problems. Those are related kinds of engagement. Right. Tell, tell me, how are we doing in California in civic engagement? What is the, what is the California story? You know, where are, and where are we weakest? Well, I think you have to look at it uh, through a couple different lenses. One is if you look at us against all the other states, we are not doing well. So in just about any metric, whether you're talking about some of the 
as you said, the big political engagement issue is, is voting and voter registration. The big social civic engagement issue is volunteering. Um, the ones that I say kind of feed into that, whether it be talking about politics on the political side or, or working with neighbors on the social side, any of those issues, uh, any of those metrics were usually between 40 and 50 uh, nationwide. And on the issue specifically uh, that we're here to talk about today on speaking with others, talking with family or friends about politics, uh, we're in the mid-40s. Hmm. And um, so that's, that's kind of one piece. If you look at us against other uh, large uh, ethnically diverse states, obviously states like uh, Florida, Texas, New York, then we start to look a little bit better. And if you were to take those four as a block, we're usually one or two in comparison to those. Hmm. Uh, again, and that's all the way across the board from the social civic engagement pieces to the political engagement. Why is that an important um, measure? You know, the, the, the asking in the Civic Health Index survey question of, do you discuss politics with your family and friends a few times a week? Why yeah. is that an important measure? We're 46th in that. Right, so most of the studies that have been done on the issue show a direct correlation between what I would call some of the softer political engagement measures, things like talking about politics, participating in non-electoral uh, political activities, and what I think most would argue are some of the more important political engagement activities like voting and voter registration. So there's usually a positive correlation between some of those lower tier measures and some of the higher tier ones. Things also like where you, how often you read the newspaper, your general civic awareness, generally ties or, or compares uh, fairly correlates fairly positively with higher level political engagement. So why? What are the, the, the typical reasons why, why we... You're really drilling other, down, aren't you? Yeah, Jeff? exactly. Big states. Uh, there, are, there, are we too big? Are we too diverse? Are we Oh, you're saying why, why, are we, why, 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 okay. are we, why are we low in these ratings? Well, um, I wrote a piece for uh, Zocalo this past week, which um, uh, there are a few different reasons for that. I think one of the more provocative was posed by the sociologist Robert Putnam, um, the writer of Bowling Alone. But in 2007, he came out with a study called E Pluribus Unum, which essentially evaluated civic engagement, both political and social, throughout the country, analyzing the results uh, in 41 American cities. And what he found was, in looking at the 41 cities, that three of the four lowest performing uh, cities in this civic engagement matrix that he had assembled were LA, Oakland, and San Francisco. Minneapolis was the only other of the four. And he made a very interesting point, a couple interesting points. I think the, the one that was probably the most controversial from the report was that he found an inverse relationship between levels of ethnic diversity and civic participation. So across a whole array of measures, whether it's uh, you know, some of these softer questions like do you trust your neighbors, to do you volunteer, do you vote, uh, do you work on problems locally, do you go to local council meetings or political gatherings. Uh, there was generally across the board this, this inverse relationship. Now, I think that has to be said that there, that study has come in for some criticism because of its methodology, which was a, which was a, a, a phone call methodology, but it's it, from some of my work uh, working with local governments around California on a lot of these public engagement projects, 
uh, I'm seeing similar results. Um, I want to turn, thank you. I want to turn to um, Mike Alvarez, uh, who's a professor of uh, political science at, at Caltech, uh, does research to focus on elections, voting behavior, technologies. Um, he studied elections here. Uh, he was uh, on, on Tuesday during the Congressional District uh, 36 election. He was on the beach, which is where every political scientist is, at a, at a lifeguard uh, uh, post where there was voting going on in Manhattan Beach. Um, um, he's co-director of the Caltech MIT Voter Technology Project, um, co-editor of political an analysis, and, and contributed to a, to a, a, a blog called Election Updates, uh, which is a very terrific blog, electionupdates.caltech.edu. Um, but let me ask you, I mean, a lot of your work is, I've, I, that I've read is, it talks about uh, information mm -hmm. is uh, really important and key in, in, in any conversation about civic engagement. And, you know, Californians often said there's a very high cost of getting information um, to people, uh, big diverse state, big state, sprawling, different media markets, mm -hmm. different places. I wonder if, if um, um, you know, if access to news and political discussion is so important engagement, you know, you know, wh why doesn't, wh is that why California doesn't do better in these measures? I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that when you look at California politics compared to many other states. I think part of the issue is there's a big disconnect. I mean, look where we are. We're in L.A., and the state capital is a gazillion miles away in Sacramento. Uh, there, there's, there's just a geographic disconnect. But, but I also think that, that uh, part of, part of the, the sort of largeness and diversity of California that, that kind of fuels this is that there's also a lot of social disconnect. Uh, you know, where, where, again, it took me, I think I drove 20 miles from here to Pasadena, you know, it took me an hour and 10 minutes or something. I never come over to West LA for that reason. So there's, there's these other types of disconnects that are fueled by the size and the population and the diversity. And, and I, I think that those do have a very direct bearing on Californians' interest in being involved in particular in state politics, but also their ability to be involved in, in, in many of these kind of political events. It's just difficult to get around. It's difficult to be connected um, politically because of the vastness of the state and, and a lot of, of the issues associated with the state's size and the state's population. I want to also ask you, you had a book last year um, uh, with uh, Marissa Abrahano, mm -hmm. uh, New Faces, New Voices, the Hispanic Electorate mm -hmm. in America. Um, you know, in, in political conversation, I often hear the, you know, you know, we've talked the diversity of the state, ethnic diversity, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, our heavy immigrant population, um, those sorts of excuses be made for why you know we're not more engaged. That um, and and I wonder you know particularly um, um, there's so much discussion, media discussion about um, the Hispanic vote, the Latino vote. Mm -hmm. um, you know why there's not more registration, why there's not more voting. Um, but you know you've painted a pretty complex picture in your in your research that also shows things that you know trust in government is very is much higher amongst some of these immigrant populations. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about what the what the real picture is there with mm -hmm. the Latino and immigrant voters. And well this. so you know I think there is a, a also a very direct some past research has really pointed to this direct connection between diversity and uh, involvement in politics and, and also uh, civic engagement. And, and, you know, diversity is a great thing. I mean, that's part of the reason why we live in California. L.A. is such a wonderful place because of the diversity. Uh, you know, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and, and one of the things we love about raising her in Southern California is all of the social, cultural, ethnic diversity that she's exposed to on a daily basis. But, but from an engagement perspective or from a political perspective, uh, you know, diversity is, is, is sort of creates barriers. 
I mean, what, part of what diversity is about, it's about cultural differences. It's about language differences. It's about socioeconomic differences. And many of those things are, I think, in California, what separate us and what divide us. And, and oftentimes, politicians actually use those kind of divisions uh, deliberately to, to divide us and to sort of for, force wedges and force wedges between different populations. And I also think that that's part of where the, the sort of lack of engagement comes from. That you know, diversity is, is something that, again, we celebrate, but it also sort of creates problems when we want to connect with each other. And, and I, again, I, I think that, that our, our politicians and our, and our system itself, uh, in some sense, fuels how diversity uh, serves to sort of divide us in ways that I think are detrimental to engagement and participation in politics. Are, are Latinos as a subgroup really less engaged by specific engagement measures? Is that, is that clear from data? Well, I, I think that the, the things like we looked at in our book, I mean, certainly they're, they, they tend to be, uh, have lower registration rates, they tend to have lower participation rates, uh, and, and some of that, I think, is, is just due to socioeconomic factors. Um, some of it's due to uh, you know, immigration and new citizenship. I mean, there are various reasons why I think... It's not explained by educational levels, well, which some, often I think some is of, a big I think issue. some of it is. I mean, I think that socioeconomics plays yeah. a big, big role in, in, in trying to understand that. Um, but I, I think, again, there's, there's a, you know, again, just a, a sort of disconnect in some ways, too, because, you know, for, for, for many of the, you know, folks, especially in, in like, Southern California, uh, it's just, again, really hard to get involved in politics, especially at the local level, uh, even though, you know, school board, school board races, city politics are really important, uh, you know, there's, there's these huge kind of informational barriers associated with getting involved that, you know, to be honest, if you're raising kids and you're trying to make ends meet and have to commute an hour and a half or two hours to work every day, you just don't have time to get involved in politics. Thank you, Mike. I, I want to, um, we've talked a little, started by talking a little bit about the problems, but I want to pivot really um, to talking about how you actually raise, improve civic health, um, uh, raise engagement. I want to turn to Karen Thorson, who's the president and uh, chief of, the, of something called the Alliance for Innovation, uh, which is partnered with Arizona State's a national nonprofit, which promotes innovation and best practices for local governments. And, and she's someone who's really worked uh, at, at the engagement level. She was the economic director for the city of Glendale, Arizona. Um, she served as assistant city manager of Tucson, uh, oversaw downtown revitalization there, and is director of the community services department, managed affordable housing, human services, neighborhood revitalization, and had, before that had a career in local government in Boulder, Colorado. Um, you, you've worked on all sorts of things, and, and a lot of what you're doing now is looking at what works, best practices, and with a particular focus for the Alliance on, on, on uh, civic engagement. So what are people doing out there specifically, you know, at the local level, all politics is local, right, that is actually working? And what, are the, what are the success stories? Well, I feel lucky to uh, be able to follow you too, because I think there are some really good stories. And I know Pete is out working with communities, and you know there are good stories as well. Uh, you know, the traditional way local governments communicated with citizens was what we might call exchange. Here, we'll give you information. Or we'll set you up in a public meeting and you have three minutes to talk to us. So very exchange-oriented, not in any way encouraging people to connect, which would be the alternative, and what we're now seeing local governments work on, which is real engagement two-way dialogue. And, and how do you get to two-way dialogue? Well, one, we see local governments across the country, and I can give you some examples, who have said, and by the way, I, I looked this up on Google, there's 25,000 um, 
uh, local governments in the U.S. That would be towns, cities, and counties, and, and such. And how many are doing rural civic engagement across the country? I bet it's less than 500. So there's not a lot that are really trying to move beyond the public hearing approach to communicating with citizens, but those that are, are making some real change. Like, they're saying, we're not the center of the conversation anymore. We need to go out and find out what people are interested in talking about, what people want to work on, who other um, institutions that could be partners with us. It's not about us. It's about all of us. So really moving the local government out of the center and out to the periphery. Two, meeting people where they are. You know, when you're saying it takes so long to get places, well, it, City Hall is really not a terribly friendly place. Most people don't feel real good about going to City Hall. What is it? You know, oh, heck, I got to get a building permit. Oh, I got to pay my business license. Oh, I forgot to pay my utilities. Um, I mean, it just doesn't conjure up good feelings. But the local governments that we're seeing are going out to where the people are. I mean, I've seen city councils that actually took their meetings out to a parking lot at a neighborhood shopping center when people are doing their grocery shopping, right? We just set the meeting up right in the middle of the parking lot and hope as people walk by, buying their groceries, because that's what they do on Saturday, that they might poke their head in and see what's going on and see what they're talking about, going out to where people are and, um, and making the conversation personal. So many more meetings in people's homes. When I was started out in this business, someone would say, can't do that because everything has to be fair. Everybody has to be treated the same. Give me an example of that, meeting in people's homes. Austin, Texas just finished a, a two-year visioning project. And uh, the first part of it was inviting people in to even help them design the process. But the end of the process was they created something they called meeting in a box. And they went to neighborhood associations, churches, schools, they went to homeless shelters. They passed these meeting in a box out to anybody who would invite four to ten friends or family or coworkers to come and talk about what do we like about Austin and what do we think needs to be changed. Pretty simple conversation. But it was neighbor to neighbor, it was coworker to coworker. And they had all the tools they needed in the box. And they could have those meetings where people were, where they felt comfortable. And then that information got brought back to the city where they could take a look at it and see what are people really saying in, in their own space about what they want our community to look like. Just one example. Do you, how, I mean, sorry to be through the cynical political journalist, but how, how authentic is that? I mean, is it... Is it driven by a deep desire to know what people really want, or is it more of, you know, I'm running a city, it's very hard to get anything done if I suggest something new. Um, you know, there's gonna be all sorts of forces that are, lie against me. People's trust in government is diminished, so I've gotta do this, and this is sort of, you know, seen as an extension of a public relations strategy rather than a, you know, part of the actual planning and kind of decision-making of the city. Well, the unauthentic ones don't work. 
Um, and we like to say civic engagement is a marathon, it's not a sprint. It's not just a one-time event. You just don't say, oh, I would like to get everybody's opinion and then forget it, I don't want to hear you anymore and we're going to go back to the public hearings. Nobody wants to come. Um, so where we've seen it work, it's very authentic and it's very long-term. Montgomery, Ohio has been working on their civic engagement project for more than 10 years. But they've gotten to a place now where um, they have an online survey where they ask people what they think and the citizens say, we feel so welcome to be a part of this community. This, I feel different about this community than any place I've ever lived. Thank you very much, Karen. I want to bring in uh, John Rogers, um, who's a professor in UCLA's Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, director of UCLA's Institute for uh, democracy, Education, and Access, that's IDEA, um, which provides data to both to policymakers and to community organizations so they can be civically engaged. Um, I think if you know something about inner city struggle, you may have seen some of the uh, benefits of your work. Um, you study strategies for engaging urban youth, community members, educators, um, and uh, draw extensively on the work of John Dewey uh, to explore the meaning and the possibilities for democratic education today. Um, he's also faculty co-director of the Principal Leadership Institute, and I think we have some aspiring principals here. Um, outstanding. So here's my question for the, the education school professor. How do you teach people um, to be civically engaged? How, when can that start? How can we do it? And, and what infrastructure and access do we have to that kind of education? So I think the good news is that over the last decade or so, there's been a set of studies that make it pretty clear that if we provide students with some critical civic learning opportunities, they will become more informed and more civically engaged when, they're, when they become adults. So what, what are these civic learning opportunities? They need access to instruction that teaches them about the history um, and principles of American democracy. They need an opportunity to have meaningful dialogues with their teacher about current events, about problems in their own communities, and about ways that they can participate in addressing those problems and ways that the state can play a role in addressing those problems. They need extracurricular activities like student government, opportunities for debate, and they need some opportunities to participate in community service activities. So that's the good news. We know that those opportunities make a difference, and in fact, some studies suggest that they're more predictive of whether or not a young person will develop civic commitments than their social class, or even whether or not their parent is engaged in politics. That's the good news. The less than good news is that not all California students have access to these civic learning opportunities. And in fact, the work that my colleague Joe Kahn has done suggests that there's real inequalities across California public schools in who has access to those opportunities that schools that serve primarily Latino and African-American students offer few of those opportunities on average. A survey I conducted last summer um, had principals report on the ways in which budget cuts have impacted their schools, and amongst other things, principals talked about um, in California this last year, there's been cutbacks to student government, to drama classes, to journalism classes, to community service opportunities. Those opportunities have been cut back in particular in schools with large numbers of low-income kids. So if we want to make a difference in California's future and in the extent to which adults are engaged in civic life, to the extent to which they're informed about civic life, 
We need to invest in our public schools. We need to make sure that those investments are tied to civic learning opportunities, and we need to make sure that those opportunities are distributed equally. In Sacramento, you see you see bills on civics, you know, fairly often, and and don't we have? Isn't there some kind of state requirement for a, some kind of civics in the twelfth grade? I mean, so what, what is the difference between what we have and, you know, what is the ideal? Is it our old school sort of high school civics class that people of a certain age remember? Or? So it, it's the quality of the of the civics engagement that young people get in schools. Every student that makes it to 12th grade、um, will have to take a government class. Unfortunately, part of what's happened because of a low quality in our public education as a whole, because of low investment, not all students make it to 12th grade. And particularly when we look at low-income students, many of those students are not making it to 12th grade. But what's critical while students are in school is that they have opportunities to, to meaningfully engage. Um, the, the material, rather than, than just being being taught in a way that it's not connecting to the problems that they experience in their daily lives. Politics matters when it's connected to to, to what people care about. How, how how related are educational attainment? We're、yeah. talking this city with a you know with a famously large、right. dropout rate. How closely is educational attainment related to? Whether you you know you participate or you engage politically, you vote, you register, all those things. So. Educational attainment is highly highly correlated with voting, but I think it's important to think about how we're defining politics, right? right. So we've been defining formal politics as related to voting, voter registration, and clearly those are, are critically important. But there's a lot of other ways that people participate in political life. A couple years ago, we had the most profound civic engagement in Los Angeles history. When in May we had. Immigration protests in this city. There were a million people on the streets engaging in civic life in ways that that put themselves at risk, and yet they were willing to do that. Many of those those people did not have high levels of formal education, but they chose to be civically engaged because it mattered to them. Because there was a threat to their personhood and their families at that moment.、Um, it's a question for the the, the whole panel.、Um, uh, You know, we, some, in some of the data in the, the Civic Health Index,、um, you know, you're talking about this this correlation between,、um, you know, the the personal or the familial. You, you discuss、um, politics with your family and friends. I, I do, you know, I've never heard this sort of, in all the the sea of public service messages that come at us.、Um, I've never heard, you know, th- that. I've never heard someone say, you know, you really should be. You know, sitting down and eating dinner with your family—you can make the world a better place by sitting down and eating with your family and discussing current events and politics with them. Is that a message that should be higher profile? Is that—is there a problem with that that I'm sort of missing? I don't know if that's necessarily the government's role to do that,、um, but I do think it's somebody's role to do that.、Uh, you know, there. A lot of the correlative studies we have done as well in the Civic Health Index definitely、uh, education attainment is one of the very positive correlative、uh, pieces. But also, and and it's very kind of、uh, year to year, it's kind of one takes place of the other.、Um, but religious affiliation is is very highly correlated to、um, civic engagement broadly, whether that's volunteering or.、Um, Or voting, or other types of political engagement, and so I think I think there definitely is there needs to be a discussion through either civil society, foundations, things like 
events like this to talk about the importance and the fact that there are things, as you were saying before, that are kind of feeders into that type of political engagement, that there are steps along the way that start very early on, but really do move along the way that if some of those initial steps aren't taken, whether it's talking about things related to history or political engagement or politics around the dinner table or you know, asking you know, some of these very simple questions about what you're learning in school today, if those steps aren't taken, then you do see a deep a pretty steep drop-off in political engagement when someone is out of the house. But, but, but we're not joiners. You know, Californians, again, right. from this survey, 31% report belonging to some kind of group, church group, school group, youth sports, what have you. Nationally, it's you know, about four points higher. We're 44th in the nation in that measure. Um, it's bad, you know, Joe. It's bad. It's bad. Yeah. So, so, so we should all go out and, you know, join a church, um, go to Zocalo. Go, go to Zocalo. Do those sorts of things. But I mean, what? What? I mean, what other? You know, what other? I mean, civics education seems like a part of this. What other broader strategies are needed? If I could just say one quick thing. Sure. sure. A, an amazing thing happened today. Okay. An amazing thing happened today. And all the talk about partisanship in Sacramento. Uh, we had a unanimous vote in the legislature today. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? 67 to 0. The legislator vo legislature voted to allow nonprofits to take a, better, uh, uh, a larger role in running state parks. Now, what does that mean? It means a couple things. It means a couple things. One is that things are really bad. And, and the op but, it, but it means the opportunities for the public, the demands that government will be making upon the public, to really step to the plate and not just vote, but to participate uh, in delivering services, either through nonprofits or individually. I see this all over the state with, with cities that have been absolutely decimated budget-wise. Brand new relationships are developing between city governments and their residents, whereas before it was the resident was just a taxpayer, now is we're gonna to have to cut this department unless some local nonprofit organization steps up here and partners with the local government to deliver that service. And I, I see that out of this crisis that there's gonna be a greater demand for civic engagement. And at least at the local city level, I'm starting to see some very positive stories. Yeah, if I, could, I was yeah, just please. thinking about the, the numbers you were quoting. There's another set of numbers that if you look Americans have been called the, um, the, the association of associations, right? Americans used to join lots of, and belong to lots of stuff. But if you look at those association and service groups today, I believe the demographic is that 80% of the people who belong to service groups or nonprofit association, some of those, those groups are baby boomers or older. The, they haven't brought in the young demographic. And, um, and so we've seen in a couple localities where the local government is actually trying to help those service organizations figure out new strategies to reach out and, and grow membership and become more relevant to younger membership because I think of it sort of as the Maslow's hierarchy. If you... If you start as a brownie and you join and you contribute and then maybe you serve on your junior high council and you see that contribution, then maybe you'll talk about politics 
later on. But I don't think people start talking about politics at dinner unless they've had some experience that's positive, um, that has helped them understand that they're a part of a larger community and they contribute. Is there any particular place that's done this kind of, you know, stepping in for the government particularly well? Well, Montgomery, Ohio was the example that I read about today, and yes, they are making a difference in that. Um, you know, the other city, I've got California cities that I'd love to yeah. mention, and, and they're in a little bit different vein, but Hayward, California has really stepped up in terms of saying we want to engage in particular people who are unengaged. And they said, there's three categories of residents, those that you couldn't keep away, they're just going to be there, and they're, you know, we see them all the time, and, and usually that's good. Those that aren't um, involved, but it's, there's no reason that they aren't involved, and those that wouldn't be involved if you, know, you offered them a million bucks. And so it's that middle demographic that they're trying to get at. And they identified eight things. What are the eight biggest reasons why those people don't get engaged? And now are trying to peel that away. Biggest one is time, time and resources. But there are other examples like they don't think they're really invited or they think they're afraid that their language skills aren't good enough to have a conversation with someone that they don't know. So. Um, eight different reasons why people who have no reason to not contribute often don't. And how can you start to attack those? I'm, I'm gonna, go ahead. No, I, I just wanted to, to just jump in because I, I'll, I'll say something that sounds really easy, but it's, it's not necessarily easy to, to implement. And, and that is that, that I think we really need to make politics uh, more simple for people, okay, easier to navigate, I think we also, if we want to talk about engagement, we need to make it more engaging. Because quite frankly, it's, a lot of it's just really boring, okay? Let's, uh, let's talk about voting for a second. I mean, mm -hmm. voting in many ways is just the, the most stupefying thing in the world. What information do you get? You get that big phone book that comes, okay? We have to vote on all sorts of things, very complicated things that many of us even, I'm a professor at Caltech. Quite frankly, I don't even understand. I don't know why we vote on all these things. Why do we vote on all these constitu state constitutional offices? Why do we vote for all these judges? Why are we voting on all these ballot measures? Things are very, very complicated, and as a result, I think many people just opt out because it's too complicated and it's too boring. I want to do sort of a lightning round here so before we get to questions, um, because I think that's a, that's a strong point, and, and I want to throw out a few things that are talked about often and, and, uh, as solutions, things that could could reinvigorate and, and, and both our governance in California and, and, bring, and bring the citizens back. A lot of conversation from the governor on down right now uh, to the foundation world about realignment, realigning power to the local. I guess that's part of being, um, you know, making things simpler. So, you know, if you go to your school board, the school board actually has the ability to do some things, raise its own revenues, maybe, or what have you. I, I, I don't think the panel thinks that that's sort of the kind of thing that we need. Um, what about, I, I wonder, you know, um, um, you know um, here's an education question uh, for John. Um, a lot of attention to this experiment with um, both nationally and locally in Compton with this thing called the parent trigger. A bunch of parents can get together, uh, say that, you know, you sign a petition and you can get the school reconstituted, take over by a charter company, what have you. What do you right. think of that kind of model? Is that... Is that an effective way to well, get engaged? I think there were two problems with, with the parent trigger. 
One is it gave parents a false promise that they could make fundamental change without transforming the amount of resources that go into their public schools. The other problem is the parent trigger suggests that, bang, you solve the problem with, with one act. Um, whereas, in fact, what needs to happen is to have community members come together and in a sustained way work with their public schools so that they have a different sort of relationship with, with those public schools rather than a, a one-time act. Hmm. What, what about... Um, um, the, what about another, uh, on the political side of things, getting people involved? I mean, in, in, this is a, California has this progressive tradition um, that involves very weak political parties, and a lot of political reform has made them weaker. Um, but in a lot of places, you know, the party is sort of a basic unit of political engagement. Um, you know, should we be weakening that? Should we be strengthening that? I mean, is that, you know, is that something that should be on the table in an engagement context? Well, I think to go to your point before about being cynical, uh, just to play along with that, because yeah, I sure. can be that way as well, <laughs> is that um, is, is what's happening is in a lot of the public engagement work that I consult on at the city level, it is a city manager, mayor, city council that is running for cover. And, uh, but quite frankly, that can be the great genesis point for a positive public engagement process where if the public is invited to really engage around uh, uh, core service prioritization is the big phrase right now in public engagement, especially in, in city governments that are what having is, big budget what problems. What does that mean? <laughs> it's essentially, and this, this goes to your point, Mike, about you know, trying to make it easy. It, it is about taking budgets and working to, breaking the budgets down, not into Excel spreadsheets that everybody gets, but essentially into core services. And then balancing and weighing and prioritizing, and this is being done online and offline. I've worked, I'm actually working right now on a project with the city of Santa Barbara that's using an online tool to engage their residents around essentially prioritizing different services one against the other. And sometimes you can start with a, a little pool of money and use that money to distribute it across a, a group of different services, and that's a way to help you prioritize. Sometimes it's actually just balancing scales to make sure you come out to a certain number, but it is... You know, the, the engagement of the public in local budgets, especially for the, a lot of these like 25 to 75,000 population cities is exploding. What does that mean, that kind of engagement though? I mean, if, if Gregory allowed yeah. me to open Zocalo Santa Barbara and I, had, and I got to go yeah. um, and open the office there and I was a citizen of Santa Barbara, I can go online and I can make choices and that yeah. will, on the budget and that will have, register in some way? How? Yeah. Well, uh, my job is to really try to make sure that these projects are legitimate, right? I mean, there was a very interesting project just last year with uh, Mayor Villaraigosa. He used a, uh, an online tool called the LA, called the Budget Challenge, and it got discovered after it was launched with a lot of fanfare that you couldn't balance the city budget. It was kind of a survey monkey on steroids. I don't know if anybody used that tool. It was a great civic learning tool, right? But the problem with having that actually translate into public policy was that within about a day or two, some bloggers found out that you couldn't balance the budget without privatizing parking, right? <laughs> which, so I, I wrote at the time, there was kind of a ghost in the machine of that tool, which looked a lot like the mayor. Um, but so you, you, have to, you have to make sure that there is that tie-in. But again, with a lot of these cities, they're actually desperate for public input in making these decisions. So, John and then Karen. So a lot of these ideas sound important to do. It's important to provide the public with information, to make more efficient government, to have people engaged in nonprofit organizations. 
But it strikes me that the sorts of problems that many people across the state face right now with, with 20% real unemployment, if we include unemployment and underemployment, with, with communities that have been hard hit for, for many years with economic inequality, that the, these sorts of solutions don't address them, and that creates a, a different sort of disengagement that we need, that we need to address. Over the last 30 years, California has, has faced tripling of incarceration rates. It's, in face, it's faced growing levels of economic inequality, growing levels of economic segregation. Unless our politics can respond to those sorts of problems, many, many people are going to feel alienated, and rightly so. Well, I can't speak to the California issues. There Clearly, there are people alienated. But I guess I unpollyannish, I still go back to, I think that there is a, a broad number in the populace that if they knew that they were welcome to participate and that you'd listen if they spoke and did something with what they said, that they would participate at least on things that they were interested in. And I think we ask too much if we ask people to be involved in everything because we're in government and you should be in, interested in government. I think that's asking too much. But if people can get heard and action on things they care about, it won't be always the action they wanted, but at least action, I think we can increase civic engagement a lot. Super lightning round, no more than 30 second answer to this question. Um, and it's a hard one. Great. If there is one thing um, that you know, a Californian should do, or that a California policymaker should do to boost civic engagement, you know, what would you name? And whoever wants to go first, uh, I'll let people. In most of the participatory budgeting projects that we work on, it's evident that most people have no clue actually where their tax money goes. So most people think, well, property taxes stay local and sales taxes stay local. My income tax goes to Sacramento. That is completely not the case. If you had any idea how little of your property tax and sales tax stayed local, you would get more engaged. <laughs> Karen, uh, same question, and feel free to make reference to Arizona. Uh, there are so many Californians there, you're practically a colony at this point. So, um, Yeah, well... I, I guess it's um, having, getting faith in leadership. And uh, one, you need good leadership, but then people have to have faith in it. And it's hard to see a change in engagement if people don't trust who's running the show. Mike? One sentence. Um, make it easier to register to vote. And mine is related to, to Mike's, which is Californians should work on the federal level for comprehensive immigration reform. Because until we have comprehensive immigration reform, many, many people in California are excluded from the right to vote. Their children are, in, as a consequence, excluded from the political process indirectly because they don't see their parents voting and, and participating in meaningful ways. Thank you. And one quick follow-up to Mike. Why can't I register to vote online in California? It's against the law. Uh, although there's a bill, I think it's sponsored by Senator Yee, which would, uh, sitting in the Assembly Senate right now, which would uh, allow California to have an online registration system a lot like Arizona does, which is once you are in the system, the DMV system with a driver's license and or a state-issued ID, you could uh, re-register to vote, you could change your registration, therefore making it much more portable 
here in California. Um, and hopefully that Even will... Even I can do it. Yeah, it's great. You can do it in Arizona. We can't do it in California. Thank you very much. I'm wondering what states do you think are the best in civic engagement, and can you give, give, you, can you give reasons as to why they are the best? Uh, I wouldn't... I wouldn't categorize it by state. I would honestly categorize it by those communities that have great managers and, un, and supportive councils are the very best. And so it's where you have the best leadership, that's where you see the best engagement. Because they're committed to it in the long run. It's not about this un, unauthentic thing. They're really serious about it. Now, having said that, we have great examples in Arizona, um, local governments doing civic engagement. We see great examples in Texas. Some of the leaders are in Florida, and Florida's in a world of hurt just like California and Arizona, but it's all about the leadership. It's not about the state. Am I wrong in looking at my glance at the data? I, I saw a lot of um, uh, places with colder weather um, <laughs> doing pretty well, and yeah, and, and Hawaii doing terrible. I mean, yep. just at the even worse than us at the very bottom. I guess people are checked out there. That's true. That's true. Um, you know, states like uh, Montana, North the Dakotas do very well across most of the civic engagement measures. Uh, Alabama actually is a state in the South that does very well. Uh, Connecticut um, and Rhode Island, uh, obviously around kind of the Beltway, Maryland, Virginia, and. and uh, the district do exceedingly well in most of the measures. In my opinion, one of the greatest plagues visited upon California has been the proposition process. Um, the way the propositions are written and the economic impact on the state's budget all point towards trying to abolish this system. Help me out in either telling me why I'm right or why I'm wrong. I don't think it... I mean, I'm not going to necessarily answer your question. I, I, I think that the, the process is probably with us to stay. So I would say that, that, that what I think we should be doing is looking for ways to make it a bit more effective, uh, to make it a little simpler for voters to understand, perhaps slow down the, the sort of process a little bit to maybe, not, to maybe force the legislature to, to review some of these before they get to the ballot. Uh, but, I, but I do think it's here to stay. Actually, uh, Oregon this past year started a very interesting process called the Citizens Initiative Review in which they impaneled a representative group of Oregonians to uh, look at two of the propositions that were about to go for, before the voters, and they had a kind of a citizen statement that went on the, the ballot package uh, on those. So, yeah, I mean, there are ways that actually the citizenry can be brought back into the initiative process at the earlier stages. Yeah, this is my area of, of writing, and it's um, we have the a lot of places, other countries and cities with these kind of states with these kind of processes have great public infrastructure that that allows the public into the process and makes things clearer. Um, the Swiss, who we borrowed this thing from, actually have rules that things have to be very clear. They have a government office of people who write the initiatives for people, huh. on which there's a sign on the wall that says. Um, think like a philosopher and write like a farmer. Uh, we could use a little bit more of that. And I wanted to know, whatever happened to the neighborhood councils in Los Angeles? Because they were supposed to be part of, they were supposed to, I thought, bring people together to solve local problems. 
I think one of the things that happened is, I think one of the, actually a, a microcosm of one of the major problems for the state is that even though they were called neighborhood councils, they were still representing tens of thousands of people. And they were doing that with an annual budget of $50,000. And so I, I, I think, and there were basically, we hit, we've hit a cap here of I think 91 or 92 neighborhood councils. Uh, I, think there's, I think there should be more funding committed to that. I think that there, there is a possibility there for greater grassroots participation through that vehicle. Um, but I think, you know, in much the same way as I think we have our representatives at the state level representing too many people, I think our neighborhood councils are not neighborhood councils. You've got 15 uh, city councilmen in Los Angeles for three and a half million people. That's about 60% of a congressional district. You've got five county supervisors representing about 11 million people. Um, the scale is kind of ridiculous. And, and the things that you've talked about as possible solutions are fabulous, but they're for, again, that 25,000 to 75,000 population city, which is a third of a single city council district. Right. So what works, A, on a big scale? And the other thing I wanted to throw in there, um, a client of mine, uh, they've got a book a couple years ago about millennials and the way they're using new technologies to help transform politics. I'm curious, that civic generation of millennials, are you seeing them as more engaged and also using these new tools in interesting ways to transform politics? 2010 was actually a pretty big drop-off in, in youth participation. I know uh, the group known as the Millennials made up about 18% of the electorate in 2008 and made up about 9% of uh, the the voters in the midterms. So I, I think uh, 2012 is going to be an amazing time to see if this is actually a civic generation. I personally am not actually, and I know this probably isn't the greatest audience to say this in front of, I'm not sold that this is really a civic generation yet. Mike, what is the data for, you know, on, on voting show? Is there, you know, we famously have the most populous legislative districts, three times more populous than the next largest state, ten times the national average. Do, are people more engaged? Do they, do they register more and vote more in a place like New Hampshire, where a legislator well, represents 3,000 people, than here where it's 500,000? The, the, other, the other part about this association that we were talking about earlier between the sort of cold states and civic engagement is the fact that they're also very small states, yeah. okay, population-wise. Population uh, yeah, you know, Alaska's a big state, but very small population. And, and you know, I, I have a sneaking suspicion, although I, I really can't put my finger on any academic work on this, that there probably is an association, there's probably a disconnect, okay, when you have these incredibly large assembly districts that we have, state senate districts, the, yeah, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors is a good example. Uh, you know, they're just enormous districts, and it's, and it's hard to, to see how there's that personal connection between a voter, a citizen, uh, a resident, uh, and representatives in these massive, massive districts. And, and I really do think that, that as we're, we're thinking about ways to engage people, and again, engagement means interaction, okay? It's not involvement, it's engagement, that we really do need to put on the table the, the idea of, of changing these legislatures. I mean, for example... Why, why is the assembly so incredibly small, yeah. given our population? Uh, do we need a bigger assembly? So, One positive example of local engagement is often the local public schools, where you do see parents participating, um, in volunteering, contributing, and also participating in, in local governance through the, the Title I councils. One interesting thing that happens in Los Angeles public schools is they become sites for 
new immigrants to learn about American democracy and participate in American democracy. In fact, a study we did a couple years ago, a colleague of mine, Veronica Tariquez, and I, we looked to see the, whether immigrants participated in local public schools at the same rate as native-born residents, and indeed they did. And that was very different from patterns of participation in civic life outside of public schools. So public schools are playing this important role. They certainly can do a better job of engaging their parents, but I think we need to take advantage of that possibility. So, so given that finding, that's a very important finding, that there, there's that engagement by immigrant parents at that level, what is the, what is the secret sauce? What is the, what is the model or in there that you could take and maybe apply to other areas and, well, of engagement? Two pieces that I think matter there. One is that public schools matter deeply to immigrant parents. Nine out of ten, when you ask them, say, we want our kids to go on and get a college degree or higher, even a higher rate than, than other groups in, in California. Um, so so that, that interest is critically important. The locality of, of the public school, I think, also makes a real difference. What we now need to do is find ways that they can take action where they feel like they can shape the work of the public school and other public institutions in ways that really make a difference. One of you made a comment that uh, constituents or people in general don't trust or don't have faith in their elected uh, members. And I think that uh, one of the reasons for that, especially at the congressional level, is because uh, you know these folks who run for office are basically multimillionaires at this point. You you can't run a campaign without having you know substantial financial backing. So I think they're seen as you know the others. We we we're not we can't attain that level. Uh, and and that's do, do you think that maybe election reform uh, is something that we ought to be looking at to you know, further connect folks with the people that are running. Well, a wedge on that was actually 2008. I don't know if folks here remember, but there was actually a ballot proposition that the Secretary of State race would become a publicly funded campaign, and it was turned down by California voters. Anyone else want to take that? You know, I think, I think that's part of the rationale behind term limits, uh, you know, as another example, to, to try to, to go back to the model that uh, I think the founders of the Republic envisioned of sort of citizen legislators. Uh, it's just hard, and term limits has been, a, I guess, a real mixed blessing, which we can, I guess, talk about. But it's really kind of hard to see what kind of reform you would envision that might transform us from the system we're in now uh, to a system where you do go back to that kind of citizen legislator model. Hi, my name is Joyce Rubin. Um, I'm an elected official, a member of the Los Angeles County Democratic Central Committee. I represent about a million people. I'm one of those seven people that are on the ballot where it says vote for seven and you wonder who in the heck those seven are. And I represent the 42nd Assembly District. We're in the 42nd right now. And a few years back when I was, I'm just grassroots all the way working on many campaigns and it was during the uh, Gray Davis, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger during the recall. And I remember the frustration of being on college campuses and the, um, the apathy of the voter. They would say they were voting for Arnold and I would say as a Democrat, can you give me a reason why? And they said, because we're in the California college system and we're going to be graduating and we'd rather have Arnold Schwarzenegger sign our diploma than Gray Davis. And I thought I have a, char a real charge here of educating the voters. So my question to you is, 
you throw out these ideas and we all say that it's with the parents, the immigrants. My daughter was campaigning for me and she said, I need first to ask the parents, not if they're a Democrat, but are they a registered citizen of the United States? So my charge as an informed citizen, a community activist, how can we get legislation? How can we perhaps have it so that required that you must get voter education as a requirement to be able to vote or understand what you're voting for and get people more involved? Because we can't at the assembly district level. It's a charge. Yeah, that is, that's a fraught with some bad history and things putting tests in front of uh, impediments in front of people's vote. I mean, quite frankly, the problem isn't, isn't necessarily, as I see it, that stupid people are voting. It's just we don't have enough smart people voting to knock them out. <laughs> right? I mean, we, in this mail race we had in 2009, L.A. managed to turn out 15% of its eligible voters to vote in that. I mean, that's like Bell. John, you want to jump on? I, I think mandating that, that people have a certain amount of knowledge is, is problematic um, for, for the reasons that Pete was saying. I think we do need to make sure that students have access to meaningful mm. civic education throughout their, throughout their K-12 experience. One of the things that's happened over the last 10 years with the No Child Left Behind Act is that an exclusive focus on English language arts and math as the areas that get tested means that in elementary schools, civics has been pushed aside. So we see fewer and fewer instructional minutes going, going to civics. So we need to find ways to account for and validate the learning that young people do relative to civics. Is there any mandate for civics, education civics classes in elementary or middle school in California? Well, the California State Social Studies standards, in theory, include material that, that are important for understanding America's history, democracy, et cetera, um, but there's no mandate about the amount of time that elementary schools are gonna spend on, on that history and that civics instruction, and so that's why it's been squeezed out, and frankly, it's been squeezed out in particular in low-income communities of color because they're most likely to have schools that are under the No Child Left Behind Act's um, accountability measures. I'm uh, interested in your opinions on the fear of conflict that's potentially inhibiting us from engaging in politics. So we don't want to engage in politics because we don't want to get in an argument. It's in controversy. We don't want to get in, involved in, in, in a debate, uh, maybe because we don't have the time, as you talked about, or it's too complicated. But I'd like to get your opinions on uh, if you're seeing anything in the research that we might be just afraid to engage in the conflict and there we just want to shut it off and that's why I don't engage. There certainly are um, strategies and practices that you can use that can um, reduce the personal conflict that you often see at local or state level where, where you see personal attacks and that sort of stuff. So um, we see deliberation circles, we see focus groups, we, you can set up processes that will reduce that conflict and, um, and it, again, I'm speaking mostly at, let's say, the local city council level, moving it out of um, allowing people to sort of take over the room and push all, all the other voices away. I mean, there are strategies that are used in many places that just don't allow that. I mean, even councils setting up 
civility policies that say you no personal attacks. You can't you can't do that in our chamber. Um, we won't let you behave that way. What, what is a deliberation circle? A deliberation circle is is, is a way to make decisions. And uh, many communities, especially used in Florida, where they're trying to work on specific community problems. And people come, and then you basically you don't let all the same people who are of the same mind sit together. Hmm. You count off, sort of like how they brought us down here, right? <laughs> um, so you count off. So you end up with different views at the table rather than everyone of the same view being able to sort of force their view on someone else. And my favorite story about this is uh, it's, I believe it was in Palm Bay, Florida, where there was a faction of seniors who wanted a nude beach and, um, and were determined to have a nude beach and came to the public hearing every week saying, that, and you know, see all these people who want the nude beach? And so they set up the deliberation circle and they split them up into, so there was only one at a table and then each table said, we don't think so. Just as a footnote, if we had the same size districts as New Hampshire of 3,500, we'd have 10,000 legislators. But if we tripled the size of our legislature, our district still would be the largest in the country. But my question, my son is 35 years old. He doesn't subscribe to a newspaper. He doesn't have a landline phone. He doesn't have a television set. He tells us that he didn't pay much attention to politics when he was growing up. But yesterday he had a, a, a letter published in the LA Times, the online edition on trains. Last week he was back lobbying Harry Reid and Kevin McCarthy on trains. His passion since he was two years old were trains. And the question, Karen's thing, how do you get people who have passions involved? Because if you can get their passions involved, they will get involved in the process. I think we're seeing that happen online. We're seeing um, communities, and the one that came to mind this afternoon was um, Redwood City, where they're actually they're making internet platforms available to people throughout their community. They can set up a neighborhood group, they can set up a train group, they can set up a sustainability group, they can talk to one another about things that are of interest. And what happens is, one, your son goes because he's interested in trains. Now he meets someone else who's interested in trains. Oh, oh, but they're also interested in something else, and the circle gets larger. And it's an inexpensive it's not free, but it's an inexpensive way for a community to say, we think you being connected to your neighbors is important. And we can, um, we have the scale to offer this up so that you can use it in the way you want and you can get better connected to your neighbors, citizens, and ultimately us, the city. Yeah, there's, there's an organization or actually a firm called Front Porch Forum that's based in New Hampshire, and, and the technology has really started very much at a grassroots level, but essentially these are neighborhood platforms that are limited geographically to uh, 200 residents per group, per forum. And some of the stories that have come out of that have been amazing, but the thing that connects what I would call more of a community building platform where people saying, you know, can I borrow somebody's kayak this weekend or does somebody want to buy my lawnmower? actually has translated to greater participation in the, right. the city and municipal um, city hall meetings. 
My name is Michael Feinstein. I'm a state Green Party spokesperson and former mayor of Santa Monica, one of the 500 cities that has the good civic engagement like Karen was talking about before. <laughs> and as we heard, a lot of the things that we do municipal level don't help on the state level. So the gentleman in the black suit asked what could we do on the state level. Something which is practiced all over the world and is mentioned in Joe's book is the idea of proportional representation where we go beyond single-seat districts where only one party wins and everybody else loses to multi-seat districts where if you get 20% of the vote, you get 20% of the seats. It seems to me in a state that has the diversity like we do in California, if we change the state legislature so that everybody had a seat at the table at the beginning, we would get higher voter participation and better government. It ought to be on the table. Uh, is, is, it ought to be one of the things we're talking about uh, because it, it is... Uh, you know, it, it is one, PR is one of those kind of systems you write, it's used all across the world, it's just not something we typically do here in the United States. Uh, so it would be a, a very kind of radical change for us, but certainly it's one of those kind of things that, that, that ought to be on the table. And, and again, we're seeing lots of, of, especially municipalities, not only in, in California, but throughout the country, kind of take a baby step in that direction by moving to instant runoff voting. So, mm -hmm. and again, I, I think we're going to hear more about those kind of reforms, and I really do think they ought to be discussed. Is there a correlation, you know, countries that have PR systems, do people show up to vote more? Are there, do they, do, are there measures of engagement that show that that increases engagement or, or not? Uh, you know, to be honest, I, I, I really can't. I mean, I'm sitting here under the lights. I, I mean, I do have my <laughs> iPad. I could probably look them up. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, certainly there, there, are, there are studies like that. I mean, there's a lot of complicating factors here. You know, a lot of these countries, are, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is compulsory voting, right? Compulsory a lot voting. of these countries require people to turn out to vote. And, hmm. uh, well, that, that's a whole other thing, automatic registration. I mean, there's a whole variety of other types of reforms that many other countries practice that, that do you know, lead to very high turnout rates. You know, I've, I've often thought that we should tax non-voters. We could call it the Meg Whitman tax, mm -hmm. you know. And, but but I'm, I'm told by lawyers that that would be unconstitutional. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay. Hi, good evening. My name, uh, my name is Melvin Cañas. I'm with the uh, Department of Neighborhood Empowerment. I work with neighborhood councils in the city. So I felt compelled to come up and, and, and say a little bit when the question came up. But uh, yes, there is a system of neighborhood councils in the city and it's been uh, up and running for the last 10 years. And uh, I myself am a project coordinator. I'm assigned to the entire central area. I work with uh, 20 neighborhood councils and I've also worked with neighborhood councils in the Northwest Valley. And uh, <clears throat> my experience with the neighborhood council has been that uh, basically they, they encompass everything that we've been talking about here uh, in, in different ways. It's not a perfect system. But it's a, it's a growing system and, and we're, you know, everyone involved in it is learning along the way. So I definitely encourage everyone to, to contact the, the department. Uh, we have a website, uh, empowerla.org. Uh, well, I just wanted to sort of answer her question to, you know, that there is a neighborhood council system and get involved because it does uh, deal yep. with a lot of the issues that we're talking about here. Yep. I'm Samantha Rollins. Uh, everyone's been giving these big introductions of who they are. I'm a student. Um, but personally, uh, I'm not, if you look at who I am, I am practically as far away from someone who would be interested in politics as possible. I'm not old enough to vote. I am studying mechanical engineering and I dread my father having political discussions at the dinner table. <laughs> but, um, either way, I am still a member of something that my, my old city that I used to live in called... You might have heard it, Beverly Hills. Um, I'm still involved in something they have there called the Beverly Hills Teen Advisory Committee, 
meaning that me and 13 other students um, are a part of the city council. We discuss with them and we give them this teenager's point of view of what we want happening. Mm -hmm. And I know there are others, several other teen advisory committees, I'm not sure about throughout California, but throughout the nation. And it seems to be turning out pretty well. Of course, we don't do big political things. We hold dances. We have a little room in the library to get kids to come back to the library. But yes, my question is, uh, what do you, why do you think that even though we have such programs that are getting definitely, at least my city, which isn't a poor minority neighborhood, um, why is it that you still think there are so many people not involved when this program doesn't seem to be too expensive to fund? I think if we had more opportunities like the one that you have, more young people would be engaged. And we, we have a project that we started at, at UCLA IDEA called the Council of Youth Research, where we work with high school students across different, different schools in South LA and East LA, and the students research conditions in their schools and their communities, and then they report on what they learn to the mayor, to the superintendent, and to other officials. That is citizen engagement, civic engagement. They're learning ways that they can participate that will have a profound impact on, on their adult lives. We've only been able to work with a relatively small number of young people. We need to provide more of those opportunities. Young people thirst for that. We need to change what we're doing. But the, the important thing is you're being listened to, and so you do participate. And I think the reason why they aren't in every city is because some communities may have tried it, but they really weren't listening. They just plucked it as an idea and said, well, we should have one of these too, and never intended to really engage, listen, and act on the information that you were sharing with them. In places where the community acts and listens, these, these activities are very successful. I've wanna, I want to tease out uh, one of the points that Pete Peterson made, and the, the issue of when, as government, uh, local governments come under pressure financially and get smaller, that they're forced to f uh, create new partnerships with, for example, nonprofits. Mm -hmm. That sounds to me a bit like politicians being forced out into the community and talk to people and draw people back in. Now, I wonder whether uh, politicians over-promising and saying, now, now, you don't have to worry about that, we'll do it for you, is it has in fact become disempowering and whether part of the solution to greater civic engagement is smaller government. We do training of public officials around the state. We actually just did a session yesterday in Corona with about 40 uh, city and county public officials and how to do this work. And one of the, one of the things that we try to get across, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's very difficult, but the one thing that local public officials always grab onto is this idea that citizens have become customers, right? And quite frankly, we are all citizens, right? And I don't mean that in a legal sense, but I mean that we, we, we live and work in certain communities. But, and we are customers of certain public services, water, so on and so forth. But so many of the public engagement projects that we work on, people are coming to these things with an idea that I'm a customer right? I've paid my taxes. That means you have to do everything that I say at the exclusion of everything else. And hopefully if it's conducted in the right way, there's a real chance for a community understanding of what the right next step should be. Uh, we did a project up in the city of Salinas, a city wracked with very difficult fiscal challenges. 
uh, we did a series of budget workshops there. The news came out the day before the first budget workshop we did that they had just hired a new police officer for 280 grand a year. And so at the first public event that we did, and this was going to be a facilitated dialogue, not three minutes at a microphone, it was going to be facilitated in these deliberative groups, a, a group of about 15 people showed up to say, this is going to be the one thing that solves their budget crisis. This is a $20 million gap in a $100 million general fund, and we've just hired this cop for $275,000, and somehow that's going to do... Now, what happens in that discussion is once somebody moves beyond and also is not talking to just other people that talk like that, all of a sudden the greater understanding of how big the problem is versus what their single issue is, the, com the discussion completely changed. And to the point about, again, what I think is, is happening, there's an instance that happened just in the city of Ventura. I know Rick Cole up there is a city manager. With the budget crisis up there, they were going to shut down a couple city parks. And instead of making the final decision to say, okay, we're the city parks and rec department, we don't have the money, we're going to close these down, they went out to the local botanical club, there was a local botanical and gardening club, and they've taken over responsibility for maintenance of these two parks, so now they don't have to close down. Now, these are little stories, but if you follow your local paper, these kinds of new relationships that are happening out of necessity, because we've gone beyond cutting the waste, fraud, and abuse line item that everybody knows is supposed to solve this budget crisis, to cutting bone. And the question is not anymore, you know, what are the things that we're going to cut and we're going to continue to exist? It is, we're cutting services that everybody believes are extremely important. What are we going to do as a community to continue to offer these? And we're seeing some extremely interesting collaborations, especially at the local level around the state.